and welcome to Life of the School, episode 58. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. But in this episode, we are getting ready for the NABT 2018 conference, and so I put together my preview show. And in this show, we're going to have conversations with John Darko of Seneca East High School in Attica, Ohio, Kelly Cluthy of Olathe West High School in Olathe, Kansas, Paul Strode from Fairview High School in Boulder, Colorado, Desi DeMova from Franklin High School in Somerset, New Jersey, and with Ryan Reardon from Jefferson County International Baccalaureate School in Irondale, Alabama. The full program for the conference will be posted on my show notes. So let's get started with our first conversation with John Darko. All right, so first up, we're going to have John Darko, and John is presenting two sessions, uh, the first of which is going to be on February, November 9th from 10.30 a.m. to 11.45 a.m., and John's going to be presenting System Dynamics Modeling, Constructing, and Simulating Mental Models. Uh, Welcome, John. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. We talked a couple of months ago, and uh, we were both working some things out, getting ready for the school year, so now that we're a couple months in, how's the school year going? It's going well. Uh, lots of I teach four different courses, and they all seem to be moving around smoothly. So uh, it's it's falling into place. Haven't fall fallen too far behind schedule, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, the self imposed schedule, <laughs> getting through everything. Yeah. All right. So you've got a lot uh, on your plate. Let's let's talk about your first session first. The system dynamics and modeling, um, constructing and simulating mental models. What what do I expect in this? Uh, it looks like a seventy five minute session. So what are people going to get when they come to this first session? So one kind of uh, area that I see a lot of people are hesitant to get into is quantitative modeling. So computer modeling, and This session is to be an on-ramp for novices on how to build a computational model. We'll use a free piece of software that can run on any device, uh, Chromebook or anything. And they'll create an account and we will go through and we'll actually build system models. This is not uh, the type of software we'll use, online software does not require coding. So it's very student friendly. And I, I build these system models with my students. And so it's this session's designed to be a, a good on-ramp for teachers wanting to introduce quantitative uh, computational modeling with their students. The types of models I have planned to build, uh, we'll do like a carbon cycle model. Okay. Uh, looking at respiration, uh, carbon emissions, uh, photosynthesis, and then we'll we'll build a glucose regulation model. So one of the most, and this is really one of the most beautiful things I think about um, biology in general are these self-regulatory systems, systems where the dynamic homeostasis 
emerges not from some intelligent control center, but just from the systems interacting. Mm -hmm. And so we'll build a, a very simple uh, glucose regulation model where insulin will regulate glucose and then uh, glucose will decline. Insulin gets shut off. So then glucose can increase and just show this kind of uh, how an oscillation can emerge. And these kind of patterns that I'll try to show are can be used for lots of different biological systems throughout the biosphere. So uh, the carbon cycle model can be used throughout, you know, all the way from cells and genes all the way up to uh, the entire biosphere. Wow. Uh, and then I hope also to have time for uh, building a simple enzyme model. And then I'll show them, I don't know if I'll, I probably won't have time, but I'll at least show them how they can build uh, population growth models, which most people, uh, a lot of people that have dabbled in this before have, you know, generated like uh, a birth and death computational model. It's, it's pretty straightforward, but uh, from these different computational models, my hope is they can use these to really uh, apply to any biological system they want to. All right. So what is this super simple system that we're going to use? I don't need to know how to do like, you know, I don't need to know R. I don't need to know any programming language. No, you language. do not. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> there, there are several. Uh, the one that I am choosing to use because it's free is called Insight Maker. Uh, so insightmaker.com. And if you can't make my session, you can play around with it there. Uh, and I'll post, I have a, I'm creating a, a resource for the workshop participants for a bunch of models that they can basically uh, make clones of, take apart and, and use. And I'll, I'll, I'll throw that up um, at the workshop and I'll, I'll probably, t I'll tweet it out too. So neat. So yeah, I know that um, last year we we were sitting in a session together where we were looking at some net logo stuff, um, mm -hmm. and that was not super complicated. Would you say that this is simpler than net logo, comparable to net logo? I would say it is simpler. Okay. Uh, net net logo, uh, there is a web based version, but I haven't found it. Uh, my my students will struggle with uh, its text based coding. Yep. So this is not text-based. It'll be object-based, uh, which I think is a little more intuitive. Yeah. Is that so thinking simply, my kids used to play with Scratch, uh, which was very visual uh, from MIT. They had the, like little pictures and they would sort of pl plop, plop little pictures together. Is that closer to that or is it even? It's closer to that. Okay. Uh, another s systems model program that I use uh, extensively for, for myself is called Stella. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's also Vensum is a, a common one that people will use. All right. So lots of programming options, but this is the on-ramp. So if you're a novice and you want to like learn how to maybe do this with your kids, this is the, this, this Friday session is the session to, to use. Amen. All right. And then, uh, because you don't like, 
this is how, why probably one of the reasons why we're friends. Uh, we're really bad at setting personal limits, and we take on more <laughs> than we should, and then we get ourselves and go, why did I agree to do two of these things? You have decided to do two of these things. And the second one that you're doing is on Saturday. Uh, Saturday is going to be a jam-packed day, but Saturday, uh, November 10th, from 2 to 3.15, you're presenting Practicing Science with Computational Models and Simulations. Um, and so in this one, you're, we're, uh, people aren't going to be building models. They're going to be using the famous John Darko models from JohnDarko.com, yeah, right? right? <laughs> yes, uh, it, that is that is true. <laughs> uh, so I, I build a, a host of my own systems models mm -hmm. and really uh, I have interfaces that are published online for students and teachers to use to kind of get at some of the crucial experiments and dynamic systems that we find throughout biological systems and that students can play with. So really what my goal with this session is to show teachers how they can practice science using simulations, mm -hmm. that it's not simply, uh, you know, just to teach a concept, but rather you can, you can perform experiments and you can test ideas and really teach the, the importance, important aspects of uh, practicing science of running controlled experiments uh, once you have your data, how can you transform that data into something meaningful? Mm -hmm. And then how do you draw conclusions from it? Uh, so we'll be looking, I'm going to use with this session, a few of my models. Uh, one I'll probably start off with is I have just a, a simple genetics one. And it's just, I, I find it so useful to have students play with the simulation at first to, to arrive at uh, try to see if they can come up with conclusions. So with the genetics model, students will often think that if you cross two parents, that uh, when all of the offspring are the same, then the parents must be both dominant. Mm. And they, they don't uh, make this connection that, well, they could be heterozygous. And so you might see a difference. And that actually, if, if both parents are the same, maybe the parents are homozygous recessive in a simple genetics model, something like that. Uh, but most of my models are will run a behavior over time. So they're iterative. They're running the same computation over and over again. But as the dynamics change, so will the values. And so I'll look at like the lack operon. Mm -hmm. uh, Sean Carroll in his book, Serengeti Rules, uh, tells a, a wonderful story. And I, I hear he's doing a, uh, wrote another uh, book on telling stories, but that. Yeah. He has an, an article that came out in the NABT uh, in the American Biology Teacher this past, uh, this past one or is coming out in this one that's all about storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And how he told that story of the lack operon with uh, Minode was just, I, I thought, very interesting. And so we'll use the, the lack operon. I have a photosynthesis model we'll use. And I have one on uh, the evolution of uh, blue muscles that we'll use also. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and the blue muscle one, I think, is, is that based off of that AP bio question? From a yes, years ago. there was, uh, I think it was the 2000, yeah, it was the uh, question one on the 2016 uh, released free response question. And I thought that what a great story that is because uh, you have a gene that it ties in 
osmolarity, it ties in uh, genetics, and it ties in evolution altogether. So those are the kinds of ideas I look for is uh, when I'm building simulations for my students to use is how can we tie these ideas together uh, the best we can. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. I think you ran a similar session last year, but it sounds like you're, you're, that's right. you're doing different models, some of the different models this year, some of them the same, some of them different, it sounds like. Yeah, it'll be very, you went last year. Yeah. And yes, and I'll have the workshop participants doing the same things of just practicing science. Yeah. And um, I actually used, uh, I did with the your white-footed mouse model this year with my APs early on when we were doing some ecosystem uh, things. And um, I liked about, you have those uh, worksheets built in on your website and I used it. We actually had a conversation about this where I got them. I was introducing my AP students who are a little bit older and haven't ever done claim evidence reasoning. Um, and they were able to see questions and then each group was able to take a different question and then play around with the model to see, you know, could they come up with an answer a question? Could they work out materials and methods? How could they change just one variable to do that um, and engage in using the model to see if they could answer a question and then make a claim, identify their evidence, and then tie it to an underlying phenomenon and really un engage in that claim evidence reasoning. And it's the, I think your models are, I find a hard time using them with my honors bio kids, my, my young kids who can't do anything, at least some of the models, um, because they're, they don't deal yeah. with complexity particularly well. Um, but the claim evidence reasoning seems very simple, but it, it has a lot of complexity to it. So the more mature students I found using that same stuff that we worked in the, out in the workshop, um, it gave me some really good language to use with them. Um, awesome. Yeah. So we spent, I spent like a day and a half on it basically where in day one, um, I introduced the model and I had them play with it, had them, you know, divided up and picked the questions, iterated on the data, ran multiple trials, got the idea of multiple trials, looking at trends, yeah. pulling out those data. And then the next day I had them communicating out to other groups like, all right, this is the claim we can make after we've done this. This is the evidence that the model generated. And here's the underlying scientific phenomena from our unit that we've been talking about that's exemplified by this model. So perfect. Yeah. So I could think you, could you run my session for me? <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm going to leave your session and go to somebody else's. I think. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Good, good, good. I, I could be a hype man. I guess that would be what I could do. I could stand <laughs> up next to you and like raise my hands up in the air and go yell, go John, go John during the whole thing. I, that wouldn't that's be distracting. Great. No, but like the, that you were talking about the complexity, it's, you know, the rigorous thinking required for science is it's hard work and it's, it's hard to teach. So that's, that's really my goal is to try to, you know, how do we practice science? Uh, it's just, it's hard to do. And, and this, you know, I definitely would never say we should abandon uh, wet lab experiments. This is just, these are structures to help teach how to do those wet lab experiments better yeah. and how to draw conclusions from those better. Well, and you also get like, I, the nice thing I liked about it is that it, you know, sometimes you get bogged down in some of the details of the wet lab and the kids get almost distracted by the detail. Like, oh, we didn't pipette this right or we didn't do that. They like get bogged down in materials and methods where I don't want to say materials and methods aren't important, but the materials and methods are just a means of generating the, the evidence that we want. And either they're sufficient to generate evidence in order to you know, engage in science or they're not. And I think we as teachers spend a lot of time worrying about <laughs> materials and methods to make sure the kids can generate data so they do that. The nice thing about the simulation is it, 
it allows them to iterate quickly and then get into the underlying concept. And so it allows you to model that idea of here's evidence, tie it to something bigger. Here's evidence tied to something bigger without getting bogged down in materials and methods um, for that. So it's, I think it's a good balance and something probably personally as the, the wet lab guy, the guy who has now done, yeah, who's now bro. done six labs. <laughs> my, my kids have just started setting up their sixth lab in their lab notebook. We started in the second, like we started the second week of September and my kids are starting their sixth lab, which is a design student follow-up lab. Like we do lab all the time in my class, but I don't feel like I do enough um, other types of modeling aside from the wet lab modeling. And I think that for students to not get bogged down in materials and methods and make sure that they understand the command language we want them to have an AP to read a question and say, not always have to think, oh, it's got to go to the bench. Oh, it's got to go to the bench. But maybe think, oh, no, there's a mathematical model that's here. There's, there's a way of simulating this here. Um, it, it's a different type of thinking and it broadens their toolbox to approach scientific thinking. So. Yeah, and that's what uh, computational models are, is really just uh, it's simulating a mental model, simulating a thought experiment. Yeah. And there's oftentimes, you know, for me, it's hard to even think of how three variables interacting would <laughs> would come out. So I can simulate that and then I can hold these, I, I can see what the outcome would be, but without actually running a, a computational model or simulation, I think we make uh, false assumptions very easily. All right. Well, I look forward Good. to seeing you in San Diego. And um, and when this comes out, it's going to be the end of the week. So uh, we'll see each other cool. very soon. Uh, I'll definitely make sure I uh, I text you when I land and uh, <laughs> check out you and we'll go out. And definitely. Have a, we'll get together for sure. Yeah, we'll have at least one meal together, I'm sure. Me, <laughs> me and the boys from Ohio will have to go out a couple times. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Next up, we have Kelly Cluthy. Kelly is going to be one of the teachers presenting at the NABT Biology Education Poster Session on Saturday from 8.15 to 10.15. So welcome, Kelly. Hi there. Nice to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. How's your school year going? I know that you're new to AP this year. How's the AP going? Uh, I'm loving it so far. It's definitely been a lot of work, but I'm really enjoying it. I've got some really awesome kids and they have a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a it is a it is a fun class to teach, but definitely daunting uh, first time yeah. around. <laughs> so far, it's going pretty well though. So yeah, you hopefully. got a you got a pretty good network of support around you to help you out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So um, I thought it would be great to have you on because, I mean, you're now you have to represent uh, 84 uh, posters um, <laughs> uh, and and talk about this. So uh, I get a little bit of the talk. I mean, I think we're all have science backgrounds, so we know what poster sessions are like. But um, how did getting a poster into this poster session work? Like what's the process? And then maybe a little bit about your poster. Um, how mm -hmm. did that happen? Well, I already had the poster made, um, so I spent a little bit of time over the last couple of years working with Concord Consortium and uh, with the Stroud Water Research Center um, to do a project called Moder Model My Watershed, which is funded through NSF. Mm -hmm. And then part of that process was implementing it into my classroom, collecting some data, and then sending it off to the research groups. So my poster is really just about um, the work that we did, the resources that are available, 
and trying to get the word out there because it's some really awesome resources to teach stream ecology and to get students involved in caring about their local watersheds. Um, so the poster was made to present at things like NABT and any other conferences. Um, so um, I'm just here to spread the word about some awesome resources that are available to teachers. Neat. And so what's the, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with what it's like to submit for presenting at a conference. Mm -hmm. um, is it a similar process, the similar deadlines if you want to join the poster session? Um, is it the same general process? You just click a different button mm -hmm. uh, in the proposals? It was really pretty straightforward. I just had to give a little summary about what my poster was about. And the deadline's a lot later. I know for presentations, you've got to have your stuff turned in back in like, is it March or something yeah. super early? Um, the poster, I think I turned in in July. So oh. a few extra months to get it together and get it submitted. I guess that's good to know because I think uh, every year I always have like the thought of, well, maybe this will be a session or maybe that'll be a session. I'm currently actually right now thinking about something that I'm working on uh, in the class that might be a session for Chicago. Um, but I, if things don't come together in March, that it's good to know that there's a later deadline to, mm -hmm. to communicate out some some resources and some opportunities mm -hmm. for people. So um, and then uh, I got the impression that these are like uh, like there's almost like a judging that goes along with them uh, where people are going to come around and evaluate them. Is that is that true or am I mis misinformed? You know, I haven't really looked into that very much. I'm mostly just here to share resources and tried to talk to some other teachers. I wasn't really judging side, but I'll be curious to see how that works. Yeah, I, I, I t mentioned it to another person. They're like, oh, yeah, I think I'm supposed to be judging those. And I was like, <laughs> really? They're judged? So it'll be it'll be a surprise if that happens. But um, just so for people who are going, as I mentioned earlier, there's over 80 posters that are listed um, in there. So really wide amount of um, resources and topics. Um, and it's a two-hour window on Saturday morning mm -hmm. from 8.15 to 10.15. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to – there's a couple of presentations that start around 9. So I'm going to have to get in there early and bounce around to a few sessions, but um, definitely looks like something worth checking out. And it looks like they're in what's called Harbor Island 3. I don't know what that is, but when we get there, we'll, we'll have to pull out our maps. I know. Yeah. All right. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for joining me and giving me a little bit of a preview about what's involved in the poster session. Um, is there anything else you're excited about going to aside from just going to San Diego? You know, I just love NABT. It's my favorite conference of the entire year. I just look forward to seeing my teacher friends from across the country and hopefully walking away with some new resources to try it in my classroom. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it is a great time. It is, I don't know if you, last year it was so close to where you are, you know, mm -hmm. was, uh, now you get to go to San Diego. I, I think you're probably winning this one though Yeah. with the travel. Yeah. <laughs> so looking forward to the warm, as you can see me, I'm, I had just stepped off the soccer field a minute ago. I'm still wearing my winter hat and my under armor and a sweatshirt over it. And like, uh, you know, spent two hours on a soccer field in new England. San Diego sounds awfully nice right now. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we'll definitely have to touch base uh, out in San Diego and um, good luck with your poster session and uh, I'll see you out there. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you. All right. Thanks. All right. Next up, we're going to talk to Paul Strode. Paul is actually presenting at two sessions, plus working some booths, which we'll talk to him a little bit where he's working with some publishers. Uh, his first session that he's presenting is on Saturday from 9 to 10.15. He's co-presenting a session called Playing with Fire. 
how we perpetuate biological beliefs about race in the classroom and how to avoid it. And then he's presenting a second session later on on Saturday from 3.30 to 4 on using the new understanding science interactive from HHMI and UCMP for instruction and student projects. So welcome, Paul. Well, hello, Aaron. How are you? Good. I was realizing as I was saying this call up that I actually have not seen you since we were in St. Louis. That's right. So yeah. it's good that we get to have these uh, annual check-ins to go see each other. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. So yeah, you you sent me a little bit of extra background about your first session, and it's like it's super super fascinating. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know what what am I getting at this 9 a.m. session when we talk about um, you know perpetuating uh, biological beliefs about race and and a little bit about maybe some background before you got into this session, and then maybe what somebody will get out of this session when they attend. Sure. Yeah. Well, to full disclosure, I. I myself am, am still at the beginning of understanding this really complex phenomenon. Um, and so, so I teamed up with Brian Donovan at uh, BSCS, the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study out of Colorado Springs, because you know, I've got um, 10 to maybe 14 years left in my career, and I, I, I see an opportunity to, to get something right that, that I think I've been doing wrong for for pretty much my entire career. Um, and so, so Brian has done tons of research on um, how the way we traditionally teach genetics education in the classroom, um, it either promotes or, or, or at the very least doesn't fix student misconceptions about the biological basis of race. Mm. Um, and, uh, or, or the, 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 actually the, the, lack of the biological basis of race yeah um and uh, and i am guilty of of of, of promoting these misconceptions um and uh, and the, the textbooks are guilty and and often early in in a teacher's career they're they're pretty tied to the textbooks um because you know the, the textbooks seem to be a good place to 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 help drive the curriculum and to get information um, and so, uh, so anyway, um, Brian has been doing a, a lot of this research and, and, uh, and I met Brian, um, because he asked me to be on the advisory board for, um, a, a huge, huge study that, um, that they're, that they've been doing with middle school and high school students, um, in, in several schools across the country on, uh, seeing how interventions, work interventions into um, sort of hacking into these misconceptions and and figuring out ways to to fix them basically mm. um, and so my students were studied last year um, in fact not just mine but all of our our sophomores in our advanced um, first year biology class that we call pre-IB biology um, and they, uh, they they did a simple 45 minute computer-based intervention um, that that showed that that teaching students genetics in a slightly different way, giving them some some information, um, does does uh, um, disrupt those those misunderstandings. Yeah. So anyway, I'm 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 interested in the topic, and I'm trying to do some things in my classroom, and um, 
And so, so Brian and I, and also another uh, a middle school science teacher named Phil Keck mm-hmm. um, is joining us. Um, and, uh, and we're going to share teachers um, a survey, share with them a survey that I've given in my classroom with my students um, to, to reveal to them their, their confusions and misunderstandings. And then, um, and then Brian is going to walk people through some of the research that he's done um, and teachers are going are gonna to be students, put on the student hat and, 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 um, and create their own models for how they think uh, genetics and race are related. And, and then we'll break those models and, um, and, then, and then show, show the, the teachers the survey and talk about the, the kinds of, of misunderstandings they themselves had and how, how we can help students in the classroom. Wow. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, I I was as I was reading through it, I had all of these thoughts that pop into my head. You know, in some ways, it's there's I have a, a little bit of the same apprehension I had when I first started looking into how, and this is very much appropriate talking to you about how that there are um, preconceptions and misconceptions that students have about evolution, and mm-hmm. if you don't deconstruct those, what they do is they basically just scaffold on the new information to their pre-existing you know, concepts and right. they don't really ever understand evolution. They just layer on some new vocabulary into their schema. And if you don't disrupt, as you said, mm-hmm. their preconceptions, unless you create these, you know, disparate events in their heads where they can't hold the new concept and their previous concept in the same, at the same right. time, and you right. don't create right. that right. disruption, you don't get there. And I can't think of something that's more powerful than talking about how, inadvertently we're if we just instruct about genetics in a way without deconstructing their preconceptions then we're doing the same thing right Uh, and so yeah it seems like super powerful and um yeah i'm like i'm excited to i'm excited to see what this looks like um yeah yeah and and i'm i'm excited to see what it looks like too (laughs) as a as a workshop um I've seen I've seen Brian Donovan run run a workshop. He in fact came up um, a couple weeks ago to my district and uh, and and ran us through a, a workshop. and And he's really a gifted um, uh, leader um, in this kind of a, a, a situation. So um, so it'll be fun to get to work you know right alongside him. Um, and, and you know the students are are really interested in genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much plant genetics, human genetics, right? So they, they always want to know, you know, why are my eyes blue or brown or, and, and we, we give them these oversimplified answers and, and, and they leave thinking everything is Mendelian and um, where almost everything is not. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, this is a really, I think, the the best opportunity in the entire biology curriculum to really um, get after some of the, the the biggest societal problems that we have. Yeah. Um, and every single kid in public education in the United States has to take life science. So we have an opportunity, and, and this is what really drives Brian and his research. We have an opportunity to make an absolutely phenomenal impact. On, on social problems, um, especially the, the problems of, of, uh, of, of prejudice. Mm. Yeah. And also even undoing the, 
the way students who are inclined to like genetics, when they get their 23andMe kits back, and they tell <laughs> them their breakdown of race uh, in there, uh, I, I could, you get this nice, really skeptical eye that you can cast on, like, well, what is this data that I'm getting, and what does it mean, and how are they generating these? And I think it could be, build some really robust conversations around that as well, about some yeah. of the, some of the um, false acceptance of that type of data. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, maybe not being critical enough about what they're being told by the different, you know, kits that they get and what that right. means. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and also that the 90% of the textbooks, the biology textbooks in circulation right now talk about race, um, but, but not well. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's a huge problem. We need to also change, change that material, get the textbook companies thinking about it. So. All right. So uh, because your Saturday is, you know, not busy enough, uh, a couple hours later, you're doing a run in a half hour session uh, for HHMI and UCMP. So what is this uh, this mini 30 minute session from 330 to 4 on Saturday going to be about? Yeah. So this is this is another um, definitely not as as dangerous misconception <laughs> um, that that we teach in the classroom. And that is the, the, the myth of the scientific method. And so, um, so years ago, um, the uh, at, at, at University of California Berkeley, um, they they developed the Understanding Science website, which which teachers have been going to for for, gosh, maybe almost a decade. It's it's been around for a long time, um, and and so so they I think maybe five years ago developed this really cool map of how science works that shows how complex the whole process really is. And it's not this simple linear path um, that students are taught. And, and so HHMI then took the, took the map and turned it into an interactive where students can, can build a, a pathway of, of a, a scientific discovery and see how one discovery might go through the process of science in a completely different way than another one and how there are roadblocks and detours and dead ends. And, um, and, and it, it takes repetition after repetition of many experiments to, to even begin to build knowledge. Um, another thing that's, that's probably not clear to students is how much um, communication um, and peer review goes on within the process, even before you get to a public uh, published paper. So, um, so anyway, with a, it's only a 30 minute session because um, it's pretty easy to present this, this, this interactive to the teachers. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll give them some different ideas about how I've used it in the classroom with students reading scientific papers and then building the map or, um, the idea that one of the ideas that they that they have with biointeractive because it's a biointeractive um, activity is to use their scientists at work mm. um, videos and have students map using those. Um, I also have used it with um, bringing a speaker into my classroom, and uh, had a, a, a chemist at the University of Washington come in and she um, she described what they do in their lab. Um, with respect to just one big question that they have. And then 
the next day I had students go and to the interactive and together we 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 walked through her her lab's process and it was like I don't know it was like 32 steps or something (laughs) (laughs) that they had to take just to get to something that started to resemble an answer yeah yeah, I was, I'm thinking 30 minutes. I've had like, I don't know, we've had like three or four conversations about the scientific method over the last few years. I yeah. will be shocked if you can get that done in a half an hour. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's great. And uh, it seems like a really neat tool uh, to add in there. And then lastly, because, you know, you're, you had all this extra free time, uh, you're going to be splitting yourselves between uh, two publishers yeah. Uh, because you've built uh, some curriculum having to do with Serengeti rules, uh, mm-hmm. and you've been working on that, and so you're going to be in one booth for that, and then you're going to be in the booth for Sean Carroll's new book as well, a different booth, yeah. uh, talking about that. So, so when, when and where are you doing that? Is that uh, during the uh, the vendor night that they open that up? Yeah. So I'll I'll be there. Um, when is when is the the um... They open opening Thursday evening, right? Or yeah, I that... think they open Thursday evening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I'll I'll be at the um, at the Princeton University Press booth then, um, and uh, and so that's for the Serengeti rules, and and they're going to have um, they'll have copies of the Serengeti rules. I don't know if there'll be some free copies for like first come first serve <laughs> folks, but they'll also have copies of the curriculum supplement that I wrote for that. Um, that uh, that I've I've heard from teachers has been has been helpful, um, and and you know I, I it's funny I, I wrote this this massive curriculum supplement and I don't use all of it, <laughs> um, it I use some of it myself yeah. but but I um, but I, I think there there's there's something for everyone in there um, that 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 uses the Serengeti rules or not, <laughs> you know. It, it's there's just some good questions, um, and uh, and then um, with uh, with W. W. Norton and Sean's new book, um, The Story of Life. Um, I'm just finishing up. In fact, um, I'm on the last chapter today, um, and had to take a break, of course, to do this interview. But um, but but that um, that's a that's going to look a lot different than the curriculum supplement. That that's an instructor's guide. And so what Sean has written with the story of life is what he calls the anti-textbook. Um, he wants, he wants the, he, he's, he, he, he chose the stories and, and designed the book to fit within a typical general biology curriculum. Um, and, uh, but, but he wants it to be an option or an opportunity for students to learn biology through stories and of course if you've if you've been paying attention to what sean's been doing in the last decade it's all about storytelling and and inspiring students um through storytelling and everyone through storytelling and so so this book is kind of like the icing um because it's it's all these great stories and and so i've i've written summaries for the chapters and then um um come up with uh with the, the science concepts in the chapters and, and some additional discussion questions, um, some ideas for activities in the classroom and also some, um, some multimedia um, things that students can do as well. Wow. Um, so nice. Yeah. And that, that will be they'll Norton said that they will have advanced copies of the book available. Um, they're, 
desk or their booth, but I don't know if they're going to be free or not. Mm. Um, and maybe one chapter example for the instructor's guide, but yeah, I'll be split kind of between the two of them. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you're like, you're, you're the busiest person there. I think, uh, <laughs> I, don't know. I think Jackie, uh, reads Pepin is probably the busy person there. Our, That's true. <laughs> our executive director. But. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, and this is the same thing. Uh, Sean had a, an article in the last American biology teacher, right. About oh, wasn't that great. Yeah. And this, this idea great, of storytelling. Great. And for me, like, you know, I think it is, it is going to be, this is now our first big meme that we're going to go to since, um, since Jen's passing. But as I was reading it, I just heard Jen, Jen Fennersill saying, you know, tear up the textbook, you know, yeah. to ask yeah, big questions sure. and that, and it felt, it feels so much in that spirit. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm very much looking forward to that book because I feel like it's very much in vain of what I've been trying to do with my AP students. Um, this particular year has been moving away from the textbook, using the textbook, but using it as a supplement for the students to dive into like, oh, I need to go and get a little bit more background on this to help me understand this larger story. Um, yeah. And that's that's the thing that I want to work to. Um, as I would describe it, I feel like I'm doing it very mechanically right now and I don't mm -hmm. have as good, I don't, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still screwing up the way I screw up everything I do the first time you mess up all, all find the 8 million ways you mess it up. Um, I feel like even though I've tried to get away from the textbook, I'm not as built into the story. So I think this mm -hmm. is the kind of resources that's gonna help me as an instructor help tell the narrative and then help students see the narrative of the big picture and how these resources support them as opposed to getting bogged down in the resources that you're using on a day-to-day -day basis, which I still think I'm probably more guilty of than I should be. Um, it's not about the individual resources, but really, really the larger story and helping students make those connections. Right. So, all right. Well, Paul, thanks for joining me. You got a million things that I'm going to probably see you in passing three or four times, but I have a feeling uh, one of those evenings after all the sessions are done, we'll have a, a chance to break bread and maybe uh, maybe have a toast once or twice uh, while we're out in San Diego. That would be great. All right. I'm looking forward to seeing um, you in a couple of weeks. It's always, it's always a huge thrill to go to this event. Yeah. Thank you for, for what you do. Uh, well, thanks for thanks for joining me so we can uh, tell people to try to track you down. It's almost like we have to have a Paul sighting because you know, like you have to get like one sticker for every sighting. And if you get them, you had all four of them, you get like, I don't know, like a free curriculum supplement or something. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, right, well you can put that together. I won't. Yeah. <laughs> a special, a special scavenger hunt. Sure. So, all right. Well, thanks for joining me. You bet. All right, so next up, we have Desi Demova. Desi is going to be presenting on Saturday, November 10th, from 9 to 10.15. And her presentation is going to be entitled Bacterial Transformation Lab, How to Do It Effectively, and How to Use It to Teach Multiple Concepts. Welcome, Desi. Thank you. So did you know when you were presenting? Um. <laughs> Yes, I did. I yeah, did, actually. We're now close <laughs> enough that people know. Um, every once in a while when I do this, I talk to people. They're like, oh, good. I'm, I'm on Saturday. They know about their presentation. They start planning, but they hadn't figured out logistics <laughs> no, yet. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I text when I'm presenting. <laughs> good. How are you doing? How's the school year going? I know that you switched schools this year. Uh, it's, uh, it's going pretty good. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, I'm only teaching AP Bio now, so it's, it's, it's a little... It's a little. It's actually a lot easier to have only one prep, yeah, but it's also a challenge because now I um, 
I have to basically switch up a little bit of my teaching because I don't have now a small group of students that I can get really close to. I have 70 students, so it's it's a different it's a different challenge. Yeah, yeah, but essentially. But I'm 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 really happy in my new place. That's good to hear. I know it's always it's it's both exciting and stressful because you had systems that worked in your old school and so in some ways it's like being a first year teacher because you have to learn the culture and all of the the components that go into being in a new building but at the same time you're experienced and you have a a tool uh, you know a set of tools to bring to the job yeah definitely yeah so all right well let's get into your talk um i'm i'm super intrigued by this because i think bacterial transformation is one of those labs where you know, early on when I was learning biotech stuff, it's like one of the first labs people show you. But I, I always felt when I first started it, it was like, okay, we're going to spend all this money for these kits. We're going to spend a couple of days. And at the end, we're going like, ooh, the plates. They the, glow. Yeah, they glow. Like, and so I just spent, you know, several hundred dollars and like three days of curriculum to say, yep, it glowed. Or in some cases, no, it didn't glow. But I didn't do a lot. I, I think early on in my career, I really struggled to make connections. So um, I think this is a great topic because I think it is a. It's not always obvious how to make these connections. So what do, what, what am I going to learn when I go into your workshop? Um, so well, first of all, let me just start by what, what is the re, what, why did I pick this topic? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this topic because, precisely for the reason you said. Because well, the, the, my actually the first reason was that I see that a lot of people are um, asking for help and troubleshooting. And it seems to be not a lot, but it seems to be that um, a lot of teachers, when they first do it, are having trouble doing it. And there are even some teachers who have been doing it for several years, and they're having trouble getting good results. Um, so even though all these labs are kits, right? So you open the kit, mm-hmm. uh, you look at the manual, you follow the steps, and it's supposed to work. <laughs> um I feel that um, that's not 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 a good way to approach sometimes, um, you know, experiments or labs. Um, even if you're a high school science teacher, and, you know, you don't you don't do research, you don't do labs, you don't do experiments full time. So it's nice to know what's behind the kit because it helps you um, troubleshoot when something goes wrong, either because you made a mistake or because your students made a mistake. It helps you manage your time more effectively and helps you basically make it work every time Mm. if you understand what you know if if you don't treat the kid as a black box okay so i'm supposed to add this much of this this much of this and and again it's your work so that's one reason the other reason is that i think that once you understand so basically my talk is going to be first i'm going to be introducing the science behind bacteria transformation Mm -hmm. how does it work why does it work (laughs) And the reason is, there are two reasons for this. One reason is, as I said, I firmly believe that if you understand the procedure, the labs you're doing, the science behind it, why it's supposed to work, how it works, it'll make it so much more effective. And um, the second reason is that once you understand the science behind it, the connection become obvious. Mm-hmm. And you will realize how many different topics you can teach with one simple lab. Yes, the lab is expensive. Yes, it takes two days. And, and I'm going to suggest actually a few more days extension to the lab. Mm-hmm. But they're not really a lot of more time spent. It's just that you know, you're going to reread the results like one day, two days later. <laughs> but you can actually hit more topics than you have ever thought. 
for this lab. And I think that's the way to teach science period. Make yeah. the connections because that's how we learn. And you get a lot a lot of butt for your money because with one lab you can hit multiple, multiple topics. And I'm not I'm not gonna tell you what they are because then you're not gonna come to my workshop. No, no, no. Before you before you dive into that, I actually wanted to I wanna bring that up because I think you bring up two excellent points about the seeing connections and one is that you can create a storyline around this lab now where you know what curriculum pieces you are, but also you can sort of reverse engineer it. If you are looking at something from a storyline perspective, suddenly the transformation lab will be able to pop in to a unit where you might not have in the past brought up some molecular topics, but you realize, oh, because these topics are embedded, I can now put this lab in a different time of the year. I don't have to just teach this in the, I'm teaching my molecular biology unit I do this unit now, it could fit into other parts when you see the different cross-curricular connections that you can make from a lab. Exactly. I've always, like, so when I first started teaching AP Bar, I had a hard time figuring out where to put the unit called biotech. Mm -hmm. And the reason that is, is because biotech is not really a unit. (laughs) It's a collection of techniques. Yeah. Right? It's not, it's not really a topic. It's, it's, it's a collection of methods to manipulate um, living organisms, really. Um, so where do I stick it? Where do I stick it? And I found like the best way to do it is to go with together with gene expression. Um, but it can be put anywhere, technically. Yeah. Because as I said, it's not really a topic. It's more of a collection of, of methods. And what goes with the biotech lab is the, with the biotech topic are the bacterial transformation lab and the, the electrophoresis lab. And again, they can be put anywhere because you can use them to teach many different concepts. And you should. I, I, I don't really. I always try not to teach things in isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often find that this year, for instance, I'm changing up the order of my units. Mm-hmm. And and why? Because it's like it really doesn't matter, like in what order I teach them. Uh, because as I said, I keep going back to concepts and I keep making connections. But this year, I felt like I'm looking at the needs of my students, and I feel like, okay, this is an area where I think I need to put more emphasis in. So I'm going to change the order of the units a little bit more, so that I can, instead of going back and reteaching that unit. I can go into a unit that really links very nicely to it, so I can reteach one. We're going on over different concepts, essentially, over different units. So I really think that anything in AP, pretty much anything, you can take it and insert it anywhere, and you can teach multiple topics with it. Yeah. And so you definitely listed this as a AP geared session, but if somebody does honors biology and t- does transformation, there's, there's probably pretty good value for them in that as well. Definitely. Um, so I, the reason I listed it, because in my old school district, um, the level of honors bio wasn't really very, um, very rigorous. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, it's, you know, different schools are different. Mm-hmm. But now in my new school district, I see that they are actually doing bacterial transformation in the honors bio classes. We have a biotech class too. So it's definitely applicable to higher level, not just AP, but higher level bio or there's specialized electives um, that people sometimes teach. And even like three years colleges. Um, 
I actually taught for up until last year. Um, the introductory cell biology course in, in a college, and we had a lab uh, component of, and one of the frustrating things was that, again, we were teaching the students, the undergrads, labs, but we were teaching them methods and techniques, and they weren't making the connections. So I think this is applicable to, honestly, to any level of a biology class. If, if you haven't really thought about using one lab or one particular method and, 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 and using it to its fullest potential, essentially, to teach not just the method, the technique, but to teach multiple concepts and have students make connections. Because students don't make connections even at the college level sometimes. They don't. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thanks, Daisy. This is an excellent tease for your uh, topic. You're, uh, you've, we've told us that there are concepts. You're going to lay them out, but you have to show up. Yeah, I can't. Oh. Yeah, I can't <laughs> I, I, you're going to have to come. Got to show up on Saturday morning, 9 a.m. in Marina yeah, 2. Yeah, it's a little tough that it's this early, but. <laughs> yeah. West, maybe, maybe I'll bring coffee. Yeah, West Coast time, though. West Coast time. We're going to be, you know. For us, it'll feel like it's early afternoon. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, thanks, thanks for joining me, Desi, and um, I will look forward to seeing you in San Diego. Looking forward to seeing you. All right. So, last up, we have Ryan Reardon. Ryan will be presenting on Saturday at 2 o'clock till 3.15, a session entitled The Anatomy of Great Lessons. Welcome, Ryan. Oh, thanks, Aaron. How are you doing? Pretty good. We got to see each other just a couple days ago when you were up in Massachusetts. Yeah, that was that was really, really a nice evening and a great workshop. Loved working with those teachers up there. They were uh they blew me away, man. Their ability just to think on their feet, to be flexible, to uh, try new stuff. I was really happy. And in fact, I actually tried out a couple of the workshops, or at least a couple of the uh, activities I'm doing in my workshop at NABT up there at Mass Insights. So I should be primed and ready to go on that Saturday afternoon in San Diego. Yeah, that'll be pretty cool. All right. So you got a tough time slot. Saturday Saturday's a tough day. Um, so... Lots going on, but you got a seventy-five minute session. What what are we going to see when we walk into this seventy-five minute session? It's it's got a intriguing title, um, but yeah. it doesn't really tell me what it means. So, what are, what kind of things are we going to get in the anatomy of a great lesson? Well, it's it's a uh, that is a great question, and it's it's as you know, we've been friends a couple of years. There's never a short story or a short <laughs> answer with me. So, uh, give me a second to kind of flesh this idea out. It really goes back to my last couple of NSTAs and, and just how how frustrated I was with the way I presented a particular activity, whether it was working for a vendor or doing my own thing. And and that's just kind of a, a brief way of saying my classroom culture has become really interesting, and I really like the way that I work with my students. Uh, the room is set up as a good place to, to think, to ask questions, to try – new things on the spot. And then when I get into a workshop, I feel sort of constricted because I've got a projector and a, and a screen and no whiteboard and I don't have the table set up the way I want them. And I just, I guess the thing I'm trying to say is the thing that I've been thinking about over the last year or so is that my workshop style doesn't reflect the way that I actually teach. Mm. And it's, it's not really 
and I'm, I was sort of, I've spent a lot of time thinking about why the heck am I even doing workshops? You know, if, if it's, if it's not really who I am as an instructor, who I am as a, a biologist, who I am as a teacher, then why am I doing them? And rather than quit, I thought, well, what could I do to actually sort of bring my classroom culture to a workshop room? So it actually is interesting. So it actually is, uh, worth traveling across the country to do. And, uh, and thinking about that, I started to think about the things that really make my best lessons really clicked. It make me leave at the end of the day saying, man, that was cool. Uh, the kids will hang out after class and tell me that they really learned something. They really enjoyed it. Uh, you know how it is when you have a good lesson that really sticks and you know, you know, you really nailed it. Uh, that's, that's what I was thinking about. And I started to think about, well, what are the common, what's the common denominator that makes those great lessons great? And I actually talked to my director quite a bit about this. And it's like, is it the plan? Is it the kids? Or is it the sort of the space between? And and honestly, Aaron, it's the space between. Mm -hmm. It's that interaction with kids. When you have a great lesson, when you have a good plan, you've got an engaging activity, you create opportunities where kids can really learn and ask questions organically and you have an opportunity to teach them in the moment, to teach them on demand, and it feels it's it's incredibly real and authentic and uh, interesting. Yeah. So that's a long way of saying they, I've got a few I've got a few things that I do in my classroom that, that that make that happen. It's like that I know how to set the magic up, but it does it's not just one note. It's not a formula. Hmm. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to showcase at least two of the ways that I've been able to kind of get kids to really dig in and think about a fundamental process or a fundamental skill. And if in a perfect world, if I can get it together and get next to bone clones, I can do three of the, uh, of my best lessons. So you ask, you ask what, uh, what, what you're going to see if you walk into the workshop room, which you'll, if in a perfect world, you'll walk in and you'll see, a bone clones hominid skull set set up in about a two meter by two meter grid mm-hmm. with yarn connecting all the uh, extant and extinct organisms in a huge phylogenetic tree. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll actually sit around that tree and look, look for patterns and kind of think about what do we know about the, what do we know about the fossils that we're looking at right now? And, and then I'll establish the fact that this phylogenetic pattern that we see this cladogram that we've built kind of in three dimensions is uh our best guess at the relationship between all these organisms and then i'll give i once i establish that pattern i give kids an opportunity to sort of test it to to poke holes in it you know rather than have kids so again i'm sort of rambling but (laughs) i've worked with i've worked with human phylogeny for several years and i used to sort of just throw the skulls out there and have kids look for patterns, look for measurements and try and build relationships. There's so much for them to take in, so much for them to think about that they can't really make sense of it. So basically I give them the pattern and then they have their job is to justify why the pattern makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and it's, that, that's, that's one thing that I want to do. Another thing is uh, I'm absolutely positively going to do. You'll walk in and you're going to be given data set of survivorship of an unknown organism. 
Mm-hmm. And rather than me tell you what the survivorship curve is, you're actually going to learn how to build the survivorship curve doing some simple algebra and then scale everything uh, appropriately so that we can just make it our best guess as to whether this is a large mammal that exhibits a type 1 survivorship curve or it's a some sort of maybe it's an invertebrate that exhibits a type 3 survivorship curve or maybe it's something in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, that's like survivorship curves open a door to thinking about life history. They open a door to thinking about logistic growth. They open a door to thinking about allocation of energy. Yep. Niches. And we always just, yeah, niche space. Yeah, exactly. Uh, position within a trophic a pyramid, position in a food web. And we just sort of, traditionally, we, we throw those curves at kids and we say memorize them. But a few years ago, I'm like, that's just kind of stupid. <laughs> what if we, what if we, what if the kids actually built them and then had to kind of look at them in trios and figure out what the things might be? So that's what we're definitely going to do that. And it, it's, it's a nice launching pad to think about niche space and think about some general ecological principles. Mm-hmm. And then for sure, I'm going to do one of my favorite activities to teach regression analysis, which is essentially getting just getting some random plots that I've developed and uh, sort of figuring out if, it, if there's a strong or weak correlation, if it's positive or negative, mm-hmm. figuring out how to draw a best fit line, given the set of data that you've got, and then essentially working in the round and working as a working as an entire group to come to consensus about what's a strong correlation and what's a weak correlation. And then once we've established that, then we learn how to do regression using just simple tools, uh, beakers or cups, uh, rulers, and pencils. Neat. So uh, for a – and those are my dogs fighting in the background. Uh, <laughs> One of the dogs has an Auburn shirt on. The other's got an Alabama shirt on. <laughs> uh, you know, I teach, you know, I teach a lot of stats. I teach a lot of descriptive stats. I teach a lot of inferential stats and, uh, I've, I've failed a, a bunch of trying to get those ideas over on kids. And, and, uh, about two years ago, I, I was just, you know, I was frustrated with nothing was working for me. And so I developed these two very simple activities of sort of one pattern recognition two ask a simple question, pose a simple hypothesis, and then, and then use, just use our powers of observation and some simple quantitative uh, devices. I'm talking, I'm talking reading volumes off of a beaker and then measuring the diameter with a, with a, with a metric ruler, Mm -hmm. and then using those data to calculate uh, regression coefficient. And it's super powerful because the kids, like they really understand what the numbers mean and where they come from. And then we can, once we, once we understand that, then we can start to analyze, you know, interesting data like enzyme kinetics, photosynthetic rates, cell respiration rates as a function of temperature, all that stuff. Neat. But I'm really trying to give my kids sort of the bedrock foundation of why we analyze things the way we do. All right. So I feel like when your description says that if I walk into this room, what I'm getting going to get is I'm definitely going to be student hat on and I am going to sort of feel what it's like to be a sense maker using these concepts. So Absolutely. So basically and you you expressed the frustration I personally have felt as I've been moving myself into the space where I've started to present at conferences a little bit more. Um, the words you said ring very true for me. I feel like I teach one way to my teenagers and then when I'm supposed to be in front of adults, I somehow stand and deliver like I did 15 years ago to kids 
that wasn't effective 15 years ago. It took me a few years to break myself of those habits to, to move to a sense-making model with the students in my room. But I don't necessarily, that's not my where I go to teaching adults. I default back to the model that I had when I learned from adults uh, back in the day. Um, and right. so, so this is an expression both of you as a, as a teacher and what it's like to be a student. So I'm going to walk in there, but it's also a culmination of you as a learner learning from your experience presenting over the last few years. Absolutely. And, and it's, uh, you know, I think we all get really comfortable in our own rooms with our own clientele, our kids, the ones that we get, you know, we develop, you know, rapport with over 180 days. And I know having done adult ed for, you know, part-time for the last 10 years, full-time for a couple in that last decade that you still got to build rapport quick. I mean, that's the challenge. Uh, and I do like, you said it better than I did. I just want to, I want to, I want an authentic experience. If people are going to spend time to show up and and hang out with me, I want them to think about their practice. I want them to reflect on what they're doing. I want to, I want to show them or give them an opportunity to see what their room could look like as well. And, and if they're already doing cool stuff, and I'm sure everybody at NADT is, mm-hmm. I, want them to, I want them to say, oh, yeah, this is cool. This makes sense to me. I'm doing something like this. Sort of, I really – this is a harder thing to articulate. However, I do think there's a lot of power in, in uh, preaching to the choir in that if, if you're already you know, pushing your practice forward and, and doing cool stuff – when you find out that somebody else is doing something like you're doing it, it's like that's very affirming. It's like, okay, this is cool. I'm on the right track. You know, I already knew this, but it's good that other people are doing this. I'm not crazy. <laughs> because, you know, we spend a lot of time, I'm sure you do the same as I do, walk up and down the halls in your, your school and look around and go, man, I ain't doing it like they're doing it. <laughs> you know, there's, I still see rows. I still see a lot of te- teacher-centered stuff. Yeah. And uh, it's just not interesting. Yeah, and, uh, but we're we're part of a, a different tribe, as Robin Bellary often tells us. You know, we go to NABT to be with our tribe, right? Yeah, and, and so, so let's make it. Let's make uh, what I'm trying to do is is create a workshop, create a space in a conference room that feels more authentically like the way I like to teach and the way I like to hang out and talk bio. All right. Sounds awesome. So that, again, is Saturday from 2 to 3.15, uh, Anatomy of Great Lesson. Thanks for joining me, Ryan, um, and definitely we'll we'll touch base once we get out to San Diego. If there's one thing I know, if I go to a conference and you're at a conference, we're going to spend some time together. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Aaron. All right. Great talking to you. Appreciate you, buddy. See you soon. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, so that is the NABT 2018 preview show. I'd like to thank John, Kelly, Paul, Desi, and Ryan for joining me. You can get show notes where you can see the full program for NABT, including many of the talks that I didn't get to have a chance to talk about by going to lifeoftheschool.org or at patreon.com slash lots. Patreons do get advanced notice of my shows. Music for this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. And I hope to see everybody in San Diego. Mm-hmm.